Hey, what's up, everybody? Isaac here, Civil Engineering Academy. Excited to be with you on another podcast episode. Definitely like and subscribe these if you haven't already. And, uh, you know, share them with a friend. Sharing's caring, right? Hey, I'm excited today. I bring Jake Adkins. He's actually a mechanical engineer, but we connected through LinkedIn and he has an awesome blog site where he talks about his thoughts as an engineer, but also becoming a manager. They're the most practical pieces of advice I have ever seen in terms of the engineering world. And I just love how down to earth he is. And he can uh, take concepts that you've probably thought about, like going from engineer to manager and really breaking them down as to what happens when that happens, the character that you have to play and take, what happens to employees as you take a management role. We also talk about the hiring process and uh, engineering sales. So there's a wide variety of things that we talk about that I think you're really gonna wanna pay attention to because he nails these things just spot on. So he does a wonderful job. So Jake is jumping on. I think I've been interviewed maybe a couple mechanical engineers. I'm not being biased to you mechanical engineers. All engineering is good, but uh, I'm just thankful that he jumped on to share his thoughts with us. So anyway, with that, I want you to pay attention with the stuff he's got to say, because it's all good stuff. It's gonna be coming up right after this. Today's podcast is brought to you by Built Bar. Built Bar is awesome. It's 100% real chocolate, 100% delicious. If you have not tried these, I don't know what's wrong with you. They recently came out with a coconut brownie chunk, which is amazing. I'm a big coconut fan, so if you're in the coconut camp, you got to try that. If not, what's wrong with you? Just kidding. They have lots of other different flavors, so go check them out. They have strawberry, they've got cherry lime, peanut butter brownie, coconut. Again, different types of coconut bars, raspberry, double chocolate, and all kinds of stuff. This stuff is way better than a candy bar for you. Definitely a snack you want as you're studying for your FE or PE. It's got 130 calories, only 2.5 grams of fat, 4 net carbs, 4 grams of sugar, 17 grams of protein. This is way better than what's out there for other protein bars and definitely better than candy bars. So go check it out at civilengineeringacademy.com slash built and use our discount code of C-I-V-A-C and you'll get a 10% off on anything that you order there. So go check that out. Hey guys, if you haven't already, I want to let you know about our awesome newsletter. If you haven't signed up for the Civil Engineering Academy newsletter, seriously, what's wrong with you? I'm just kidding. Go check it out though. You'll get all the latest episodes that we produce, blog articles, exams, discounts, course material, all this fun stuff is through our newsletter. So if you haven't signed up, go check it out. That's civilengineeringacademy.com slash newsletter. You'll be taken. Go sign up and uh, you'll start getting our fun newsletters that we send out usually once a week. So go check it out, civilengineeringacademy.com slash newsletter and go sign up. All right, we are running. Jake, thanks for joining me on the Civil Engineering Academy podcast. I appreciate you jumping on here. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, this will be fun. So I kind of connected with you through LinkedIn, but really it's through the blog articles I noticed you've been writing. And we haven't had too many mechanical engineers on the show, which is probably my fault, but we're not biased like that. We like mechanical (laughs) engineers. I guess before we dive into anything, why don't you tell me how, I guess, you found yourself into engineering and what you do today? Sure. Yeah, I was, uh, that's kind of a winding road, I think, for me to have settled on mechanical engineering. I was always traditionally the same story, 
into Legos, into science, good at math, as most engineers are, and they go, oh, you should be an engineer. And I didn't really know any engineers. There wasn't anybody I really knew that was an engineer or knew what they did, and so it didn't really strike me as something to do. In high school, we had some money from, so I went to Clemson University, we had somebody from Clemson come down. They did the polymer engineering or something like that. They kind of did a cool demonstration of like the stuff that they're developing. And I think, you know, that stuff that goes into baby diapers is very absorbent. Uh, And so, you know, they're pouring pouring water in a cup and then turning it upside down and it doesn't show. I thought, well, that sounds cool. And I started looking, I went for a visit and saw, you know, it's sort of a limited field. And so I thought, oh, chemical engineering. And so I enrolled in Clemson, then very quickly realized I do not like chemistry at all. I hate chemistry. And so it's probably not a good route for me. So I was like, well, I like machines too. So let's do mechanical and ended up there. Did a quick uh, two-year stint in the automotive industry. And about 2008, if you recall what was going on then, everything that I did was in SUVs. Oil hit $150 a barrel. You couldn't give an SUV away. And I was like, hey, you know, I should probably leave before they asked me to leave because it was not looking great at our company. I uh, ended up going to an oil and gas company and was there for 14 years, worked my way up through uh, multiple levels of engineer, senior engineer, engineering manager, senior manager. And then recently I have left that company in Houston come here to Virginia, and I am the director of engineering for a little bit of a smaller company, but uh, we do maintenance away equipment for the rail industry, so maintaining the tracks and the ballast. That's awesome. Well, and the rail industry has been all over the news these days. (laughs) It it has, yes. Uh, And I will say, luckily, my company is not part of this, so we're just (laughs) observers. (laughs) Well, um, take me through this. One of the blog articles you write, is the big change that happens when you go from being an engineer to being Mm -hmm. a manager. So I guess, could you touch on a couple obstacles that you saw when that change happened? Yeah, so for me, the biggest adjustments were really, I think, three things. One of them was the time scale I was thinking in. One of them was the details that I was getting into. And the other one was, what I'll say is like almost the character of being a manager. So how are you a manager and what does that look like? And so for on the detail side of things, that's really a difficult balance to find because you need to be enough in the details to be able to use your experience and your expertise to figure out where, you know, is there a problem here? Or is this going the right way? But not so much into the details that that's all you're doing. You're not thinking further into the future, things like that. That one, I don't know that I can give you, uh, give any listener a good piece of advice of like, this is the level of detail you need to be in. It's just, you've got to find it for yourself. Maybe I can comment on that. I think everyone's seen or had maybe a manager where they have dived into the details and you kind of step mm-hmm. back and wonder, why am I even designing this when my manager yep. just comes in and does the whole thing for us? And sure. I've seen that at management and director levels where they just cannot let go of being an engineer. I definitely agree with you on there. You really need to find out where your new boundary is on letting it go and being involved. Mm-hmm. Well, and then on the other side of that, I've seen other managers uh, not get into any of the details at all, and a project basically had no oversight. And so there is a balance that you have to get it. You have 
sufficient detail is really the key, but I don't know how to define what that is. Good balance. Yeah, good point. Yep. And then the time scale, I think, is a little bit easier to have. So, I mean, as a manager, I think you really need to be thinking in the really three months to one year time frame as a frontline manager, as a first level manager, as a individual contributor, you're always thinking about what's the next task I have to do. And as a manager, when you get up, you need to start planning further in advance. And whether that is if you need to push your guys to say, okay, well, I know we have six months to do this project, but we've got another project right after that. So let's try to pull that timeline into five months to give us a little more time. Or if you look at it, you're looking at headcount and you're saying, okay, I've, I've got enough people today, but in a year, you know, I'm going to need five more people. And so the reality is, is that if in a year you need five more people, you probably need to have hired those people in six months before that, which means you probably need to start looking today. Get the ball rolling. Right. Because you can't just bring an engineer in off the street. And even if they're a good engineer, competent, have experience, there's still a learning curve with your company, with the way things are done. And you've got to give them about six months before they can start to be productive, even if they've had done exactly that job for a very similar company, you still need six months. That's very true. Totally with you. Yeah. Managers need to be able to forecast, look into the future a little bit and Mm -hmm. plan ahead. So a different way of thinking it versus just being an engineer where, hey, here's a project. You're focused on that project. Maybe you've got a load of projects. I don't know, but you're focused on those. So yeah, good points. And what was that third one you had? Yes, the third one is what I almost call like the character you play as a manager. Ah. And so I think some people maybe have it in them a little bit where they're just their natural personalities work as a manager. I don't. And so one of the things that, that I learned from one of my managers early on in my career, he was just, you know, would ride you, you know, nothing you could do was right, things like that. And what I learned kind of quickly is that the only reason he did that is because he saw potential in you. The people who he didn't see any potential in were just kind of relegated off. Like he was doing that to develop you. But then we were out of town somewhere and had a session like that. And then it was time for dinner. Workday was over. We're going to go and get dinner. And immediately he just changed. He was a different Mm -hmm. person. And really nice, really kind, very encouraging, very easygoing as well. You know, didn't have, and I realized like, oh, that's a character he's playing in order to, it's a role. That was where I was struggling with is that, you know, I've got a very easygoing, almost very passive personality. But in order to be a manager and a good manager, you can't be passive. You know, you can't be this sort of crazy driver psychopath that makes people want to quit. But at the same time, you can't just say, oh, well, it'll be done in, you know, that's a month late. It's all right. Okay, well, you didn't quite get those calculations right. That's okay. You've got to hold people to an expectation. So that's where I, I learned I had to develop the character of Jake, the manager. It's not totally a different person, but it's just, you know, tweak on my regular personality. My, during COVID, my wife, that was really the first time she saw what she calls work Jake. Did she like work, Jake? She does not like work, Jake. <laughs> she does not like him at all. She's just like, you're just so direct. And, you know, sometimes you're rude. 
I think you've just described like the most accurate description of like a manager or becoming a manager that I, I've probably ever heard of. So I think you've nailed that really, okay. really well. That's awesome. But yeah, I totally see that. I've been in the same boat where you go to dinner with the your manager and they're like a totally different person versus yep. when you're working with them and it's like, dude, uh, okay. Yep. <laughs> Off a little bit here, but I can see that there's a pressure they have on them, you know, that's a, they mm-hmm. got to perform. They got to drive the ship. And if you're wearing that manager hat, I guess, uh, you know, you take yep. out character. I'm sure there are some people who find themselves in a managerial position that maybe didn't want it. But being a manager, when you're not a manager and you look at the managers, you're like, oh, they just tell you what to do. And then you become a manager and then you realize, oh, no, I still have bosses. And then, oh, by the way, I've got however many direct employees pushing back on me now, too. And it just becomes a very stressful. It's a lot of work. You really aren't going to do that unless you really are driven to do something. And so there's a there's also an internal drive that managers, I think, have more than just there's anything wrong with being an individual contributor for the rest for your career, which, you know, to be honest with you, I think I had some of my earlier companies had a track of becoming an expert engineer, like really laid out. I probably would have stayed and been happier being that expert engineer, just individual contributor. Maybe I'm leading projects, but they don't have direct reports, really continuing into the details and engineering things. But that wasn't a track that was available to me to advance and have an advanced career. You're not going to become a manager unless you've got some kind of real drive to do it. Now, often you hear that engineers don't make great managers. I hear that often. And maybe yep. it's like you described, maybe it's a position they didn't really want, but because of your mm-hmm. work history, your experience, you're doing good work, they just naturally, you know, this is the guy that steps into that role. But sometimes right. they don't want it. Sometimes it's they get it and then they realize this is not what they want. But yep. I guess you don't, you got to discover that. And maybe it's a mix of your personality traits and what your goals are. I think also one of the things that engineers butt up against is typically the management route usually pays more. So people lean towards that because there's definitely more dollars there is what I've seen. Maybe you think otherwise. I'll do well as an individual contributor, but I just, everything that I've seen in terms of salaries and stuff, if you go the management route, there's usually tied to higher salary levels. Yep, you absolutely can be tied to a higher salary level, higher bonus levels. You know, if there's some companies, you know, when you, you're not going to get, you know, stock grants and things like that, if you're not in a management track and, you know, which are long-term incentives, right? And I think you're right. People will gravitate towards something they don't want to do just purely so they can get the money and it ultimate and doing that is something that's going to, you're going to be unhappy and you're not going to be good at it, which is going to make you less happy. There you go. Well, uh, wow, this has been great. Let me walk through another thing you mentioned on one of your blogs, but you mentioned that when you became a manager, there was an employee that, you know, a coworker that you knew for like five plus years. And as soon as you put on that management role, there was some friction there. Could you describe that relationship that happens when maybe you've worked with a a team of people for years and then all of a sudden Mm -hmm. you're the manager? How does that relationship change? It definitely changes. And for me, I've seen probably a couple of different reactions. So you get to some people who will basically do whatever you say because you're the manager. They attach that title. They attach the title to 
experience almost. And so like last week, I would have told you, I would have asked you to do something and you would have pushed back on me. And then this week you do exactly that with no questions asked. And it's, it's almost like that to me is a dangerous as well, right? Because as a manager, you don't want to be autocratic. It needs to be a team effort and people need to push back on you. And so you've got to encourage those people to say, no, no, look, I need your pushback. I need you to challenge my ideas. And then you've got the kind of opposite end of the spectrum, which is people, they're not happy with you being in that role. They don't want to have somebody. And that can come from a couple of reasons. You know, maybe they didn't respect you to begin with. They thought they were better than you. Maybe they thought you they should have had the job. Those are difficult cases to handle. And that one is going to take time to really work through. You know, unless it's really bad, you have the time to do it. If you have somebody who's disruptive and insubordinate, you may have to, you know, make a human resources type decision, whether that's transferring them out of the group or terminating them or writing them up, whatever it is. But most people just kind of have that low level simmer of resent. It's not too bad. And you can work on it. They get over it over time too. They'll get over it. And you as a manager can look for some ways to throw them some bones and to give them some props and make sure that they know they're appreciated and understood and things like that. And that's really, I think, one of the ways to go about doing that. Yeah, I've noticed as as managers, I've noticed just in the engineering world, there's a lot of times there's not enough props given to people. I mean, people Mm -hmm. are so busy, they just put their head down and go to work. But a little thank you and a job well done, even in front of like a team meeting. Hey, yep. this guy knocked this out. We got it done. Just wanted to say thanks for doing that. Like that stuff goes a long way. They, they're definitely going to feel appreciated. Even a small gift card to something mm-hmm. doesn't need to be huge, but just says, you know, we acknowledge your efforts. We know you yep. worked hard and we value you here. So I've seen places where that doesn't happen. And over mm-hmm. time, those things just kind of pile up on employees and they feel like, they're just crapped on all day. So, yep. You know, I'm a big fan of public praise and private criticism, and also not just within the context of the group. So, if I'm the manager, somebody on my team does well, you know, I think it's good to let the team know, but also in public, let my manager know that this person did really well. Yes. But on the inverse side of that, for me, the manager has to own the blame of things going wrong. And so when you've got a team that knows that they're going to get the, you know, the praise that they deserve when something goes right, but they're going to be protected when they make a mistake, they've really got the freedom to do some great things and to take risks. And they have to be well-reasoned risks and sound engineering principles. But sometimes we do take some risks on projects that pay off really well. But you do have to, you know, certainly have those tough conversations in private. If, you know, something, somebody made a mistake and it didn't work out right, you've got to have those tough conversations and let them know, like, okay, what happened? What are we going to do to make sure this never happens again? Yeah, makes sense. This thought probably ties into everything that we've been talking about. But a lot of times in another article, I think you talk about the importance of speaking up. Maybe you're in a team meeting or something. Maybe it's voicing you know, a no or some constructive criticism back. But what if that's a challenge? Like engineers, I think in general, have a challenge with pushing back or speaking up because a lot mm-hmm. of times we've been drilled in school that this is the right answer. You know, you've done calculations and there's a right and a wrong answer. 
And now all right. of a sudden you're in a workplace and we're supposed to challenge what people think or challenge what that person did. Like, I guess it, maybe it doesn't come naturally, but what tips do you have for someone that struggles with that? Why is that, do you feel important to speak up? Well, I think from speaking up, it depends on, the advice will change depending on your career status, right? So for the young engineer who's just fresh out of school, not even necessarily challenging somebody, but speaking up in a group presentation or a group idea to say, this is what I think we should do. That I think is really critical for the young engineer because what ends up ultimately happening is the only way to learn how to make decisions is to make decisions and then seeing what happens and then adjusting your decision-making based on that, right? And so what you need to do is take what I would say low-risk decisions, which is committing to an answer in public amongst people who are better than you are, mm -hmm. and then listening to the criticism of it and understanding why it was criticized and then adjusting based on that. That's a very low risk. You saying in a meeting, oh, I think we should do this, nobody's going to die from that, right? No bridge is going to collapse. No machine is going to you know, go off the rails if that happens. To your ego, it's not low risk. Exactly. Right? Yeah, it, it is. But that's the only way you're ever going to be able to make it a good decision is to have made bad decisions at low risks, learned why they were bad, and then figured out how to make good ones. As you get a little bit older, I think you sort of fall into more on the ethics side of engineering. If you look at something, a calculation, you think to yourself, that doesn't sit right with me. You have an obligation to, you know, as an engineer to be able to, to speak up and to make those calculations make sense. Because, you know, I could sit down and write a bunch of garbage out and say, and circle it at the end, say, look, it's fine. But somebody has to actually read that and check it and think that it follows sound engineering discipline and principles. We kind of had a joke in my last job when we would talk about FEAs is that people would run FEAs and then you would look at the stress profile after and they go, oh, look, it's all blue, which in, in the FEA world, you know, blue is low stress and red is high stress, but that scale is settable, right? And so we had some guy who had his scale set way wrong and he goes, oh, look, it's all blue. You can make mistakes and make it look all right, but you have to actually, as an engineer, delve into the details. You can't say, oh, it's blue. You have to say, well, what is that stress? And is it okay? Is that within the acceptable limits of whether it be fatigue or the, you know, or if it's a catastrophic failure, whatever it happens to be, right? Great advice. As we march on, there was a couple more awesome articles that you've written, but one of them was about engineering and cells and why all engineers basically are involved in cells at sublevel. Could you yep. maybe speak to that? Because I don't. I think most engineers that start this career in an engineering field don't understand that that's an important aspect of their job at some, mm -hmm. some level. Why do all engineers need to learn sales? Well, uh, you've got to learn sales really because the reality is is that you in the workplace, everybody is your is a customer of yours, right? And so you have to be able to sell them what is right. And so, you know, whether that be an actual paying customer, I've had customers come to me and say, hey, I want this thing and it violates the laws of physics. But I can't look at a customer and say, you're an idiot that violates 
the laws of physics. You know, I, I have to be able to sell them on another idea. And so, I mean, I guess I could, but I wouldn't be either working there very long or my company wouldn't be in business if we told all our customers they were idiots. There goes your contracts. <laughs> yeah. So I have to be able to sell them on something that works. Just as engineers, we think in systems, right? And so we think, oh, if I have this and this and I add them together, this happens. Of course, it's logical, but but people are people, right? And even engineers as as humans, we're not like that. We know that there's weird preferences we have that don't make any sense. And you have to understand those and, and really be able to sell to a real customer or you need to be able to sell to your boss, right? I mean, if you've got a process in your organization that takes too much time, it's a bad process. It leads you want to make changes to it. What you've got to be able to do is convince him that it's worth the time to change that. And he may have written it. And so you've got to be able to sell him on the idea of this is where we're at and this is where we could be. And this is how much better we, you know, it's a sales role. That's good. And I think also like as a starting engineer, just producing a good quality product, knowing who you're working with as a client Mm -hmm. goes a long ways, you know, because that client's going to turn around and say, hey, I liked that engineer but we'll continue yep. to do work with you. So, you know, when you're starting out, you may not see the vision of cells, but just by doing a good job, you're participating mm-hmm. in that feedback loop almost of getting more work. Yep. And also I think what we as engineers don't do very well is I think a lot of times we don't understand we're in a business. We have engineering practice and we have ethics and we have all of this, you know, a lot of high-minded things that we're going to do excellent work. And all of that is absolutely true, but none of it happens if we don't sell a product and make money. There's nothing more important that the company does is selling the product. Because without that, there is no company. There is no engineering. It all goes away. (laughs) Yep. I just have a few more questions and our time is limited. So one of the things you post about is that when you hire employees that you shouldn't be focusing on necessarily your GPA. Maybe that ties to certain status in school or something. But why should employers not solely hire on GPA? Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, I think in, in that article, I talked about an interview experience that I had and there was, it was a job I really wanted to do. I thought it would have been interesting. It was, you know, on campus interview. I got the interview, went in, sat down and, you know, they had a couple of statics and dynamics questions on paper. That was it. And then they had some, you know, interview questions. And so I sat down, they handed me the paper and I worked through them and answered his questions at the end of it. You know, he said to me, it's like, wow, you did really well on the statics questions, dynamics questions. You did them very fast. They're correct. And, you know, I liked your personality. You did it much better than the guy that interviewed, the only other guy interviewed. And so I'm thinking to myself, interview at least, this is great. And he goes, but I'm not interviewing you. No, we're going to bring you back because your GPA is too low. And it's like, this doesn't make sense to me. I have demonstrated here that I understand what I'm doing. My GPA is low, but there's reasons for that. I think the reality is, this is anecdotal, I think, but there's some other companies that agree with me. You know, Google is one of them. They stopped looking at GPAs. I just don't see that. And I've done, again, anecdotal, but some of the best engineers that I've worked with, they've had kind of low middling GPAs, but they're way better than people who had four O's. And then I've had, but I've also met some people with four O's that were really good. So I mean, I don't think you can look at that number and be able to predict what's going to happen in the future. I just don't think it's a good indicator. I totally agree. 
I mean, I myself, I didn't have the highest GPA in college. Life gets busy and sometimes you can't tackle it all. So you do your best. And um, right. it doesn't translate that. I'm always a little suspicious of people with 4.0s when I in the hiring process. The problem, not everybody who has a 4.0 has this problem, but the people who have this problem all have four, very high GPAs, is that you give them a task and they do a calculation. They have a very difficult time that there isn't a back of the book to check their answer. They're like, so is it right? You read it and you're like, it looks right to me. How do we know it's right? I'm like, well, I checked it and you checked it and we say it's right. But there's not an answer key. And they, they really struggle with that of making sure they have really the right answer, which you have to get to, but you have to, that's engineering. You're the one who's the expert that says it's right. That the, You're the one. I could speak a little bit to that too. <laughs> and this is not a knock of people that get 4.0s, but like you said, I'm sure there are plenty that, that don't do this. But a lot of times, the people I have personally known that have had 4.0 GPAs, sometimes there's a balance between like common sense and like book smarts. And like you're saying, mm-hmm. they want to know where the answer is in the book. But the common sense piece is just like, you got to think for yourself a little bit. Like you have to make a, a call on something. <laughs> And sometimes those are off. So good points there. I agree with you. This has been really fun for me to do, Jake. I appreciate all the insight. I can tell you've taken a lot of time to think about these things in the engineering industry. And it's fun to just kind of uh, hear your thoughts come out with a lot of these questions. So as we wrap up, is there any resource that you would recommend engineers dive into? I I guess, what's your blog site too? How can we... Sure, yeah, yeah. You know, if you wanted to uh, go to my website, it is thejakeadkins.com. Somebody's camping on jakeadkins.com. There's no site. My LinkedIn has got a link to all of the other stuff. So if you look me up, Jake Adkins, that's where I am. Probably, I think the best resource for engineers is a book called The Unwritten Laws of Engineering by, I think it's W.J. King. It's ASME Press. It was an article that was written in like the 1940s or a series of articles. It's a very short book, maybe 75 pages or something like that. And it's really covers a lot of things that we've talked about here, which is really the business sense of engineering. You've got an education, you've got the fundamentals of engineering, but how do you navigate a workplace and what do you do? It's outdated, you know, certainly being written in the 1940s. So it's like, okay, there's some things in there that are kind of like, but as an overall resource, I think it's great to think about. And, uh, you know, another one I'll say, which is just a fun one, is uh, a book called Stuff Matters. It's written by a material science guy. I forget his full name. I know it's Mark something with an M. But if you just Google Stuff Matters, it'll come up. And uh, it's just a fun little walk through different materials, how they were invented, how they were used. Very interesting book. Okay. Well, we'll link those in our show notes for people as we uh, dive into those. And uh, we'll make sure we point people to your LinkedIn and, and other stuff. So appreciate you. Sure, that'd be great. Well, thanks for doing this with me, Jake. I appreciate it. And uh, I guess we'll maybe we'll see you in another one in the future. I would love to come back if you'd have me. I've had uh, a lot of fun this morning and uh, going over this stuff. I love talking about engineering. And so I'll take any time I can to talk about it. Do it. Yeah.
All right, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Jake, who is a director helping uh, the railroad industry maintain uh, the rail lines and stuff. So I know the railroad's been in the news quite a bit these days, but Jake brings a ton of engineering management experience to the table. He even managed 60 people at one time at the age of 36. So he's got a lot of good stuff going on there. So we wish Jake the best. Hey, if you're ready to pass your exams, we want to help you to also become a professional engineer. So check us out at civilengineeringacademy.com. If you want to check out a course for your PE, check out civilpereviewcourse.com. And if you want to uh, help with your FE exam, we help you there too at civilfereviewcourse.com as well. So we're excited to help you on your journey to become a professional engineer. Let us help you get there and uh, we'll see you in the next one. Bye. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Civil Engineering Academy podcast. Thanks for joining me today. If you want, please leave a review or a comment or a like. They definitely go a long way and share it with a friend because why not? It helps. Hey, if you're interested in becoming a guest, feel free to shoot me an email, Isaac at civilengineeringacademy.com. And if you know anyone or yourself personally, definitely check out our website, civilengineeringacademy.com, where we can help you on your journey to become a professional engineer, whether that's to help you pass your FE or your PE, or just get great career advice. And if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of this podcast and have an amazing outreach to other civil engineers, also shoot me an email and we'll be there to help you. Anyway, thanks for joining me today and we'll see you in the next one. Bye.